So as I was saying earlier, there's a little bit of change of plans today. You see, this week I was working on a sermon as I do every single week, and that journey typically starts on Monday, and if I'm lucky, I'll have that wrapped up on Wednesday, and I was lucky, or fortunate, I should say, this week, and I had that wrapped up on Wednesday. So I began to plug in the slides and everything that we were going to talk about for today, Sunday, on Thursday afternoon. But shortly after leaving the church office and going home, I began to feel convicted. And I did not know why I started to feel convicted, but I felt convicted nonetheless. And by the time Friday rolled around, I realized that the reason why I was convicted was for the message that I was going to preach on today, this Sunday. Realizing for myself that fatherhood is such an important topic, I started to feel convicted that the sermon that I wrote was not supposed to be the sermon that I would preach. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm a firm believer that any pastor or person that is proclaiming God's truth that is speaking the goodness of God on a Sunday is something that we celebrate and something that we should be thankful for. But I also believe that it's not good to ignore the convictions of God. So you see, because I'm a stubborn man, that conviction just continued to grow. I ignored it that Friday, I ignored it that Sunday, and then Sunday or Saturday, and then of course Sunday today being the day that I would preach to you guys on the temptation of Jesus, I could just not shake the growing conviction in my heart. It grew so much that this morning I realized that if I were to preach the sermon that I had prepared for you guys today on this Sunday, that I would not be able to preach it with the passion that I felt like it deserved. Realizing that I wanted to preach a message today more directed towards fathers, I said to the Lord in my morning prayer, well, God, what do I do? Because I don't know if I have anything written. And I don't think the church wants me to write something on the way there. Well, as I prayed, it came to mind that I wrote a sermon a number of years ago. And I'm going to preach this sermon to you today. And the sermon title is called In the Shadow of God's Love. And this sermon is special to me for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is because I believe the contents of this sermon are incredibly important, especially for the day and age that we live in. The second reason why I believe this sermon is important, at least important to me, is because it's actually the first sermon I ever wrote to an adult audience. I wrote this sermon seven years ago to, for the first time that I would preach on a Sunday to an adult audience. And there's actually one person in the audience who heard that sermon seven years ago. So hopefully you don't beat me up too much for hearing it again. And uh, then again, oftentimes we don't always remember what we heard last week. But as I've been told before, Sunday sermons are kind of like breakfast, right? You don't necessarily what you remember what you had yesterday, but you know you needed to eat it because it was good for you. So I'm going to break some rules that I've been taught in seminary to not change a message in the last minute today, believing that this message is what we need to talk and hear about today. And part of that reason is because I personally have a heart 
for the issues of fatherlessness. If you didn't know, today on this Father's Day Sunday, 18.3 million children are waking up in fatherless homes. If that wasn't sad enough, children that grow up in fatherless homes are four times more likely to live in poverty. Children in fatherless homes are two times more likely to drop out of school. They're more prone to antisocial behavior, and boys specifically are more likely to repeat abandonment within their own families if they grew up without a father. And the truth is, is that the statistics and the lists go on and on and on about the devastation that we see with families that grow up with absent fathers. And you see, I believe that fatherlessness is not just being absent in body, but it could also mean being absent in mind, being absent in affection, or maybe even better said, being absent in the duties that God calls men to live up to when it comes to being a father in a home. I understand that for some of us, hearing this message could be difficult. It could be difficult because we may have grown up in a home where our father did not rise to the occasion. It could also be difficult because we might think of ourselves as this type of father. One who did not rise up to the occasion and who did not fulfill the duties that we know in our heart we were called to fulfill. And for that reason, please know that the goal for today is not to do harm to anybody in the sense of just making you feel bad or belittling you for any failures that you have either received or perpetuated for yourself. But rather, the goal for today is for each of us, whether a father or not, to better understand for ourselves the need to love. And not just love through passions, but love through action. And love through the way that God calls us to love. Amen? So I hope and pray that you are okay with an interruption in our normal scheduled programming for a message that I think we need to hear today. So in order to do that, we're going to open up our Bibles, our weapons, if you will, if you were here this past Sunday, as I mentioned, that the Word of God is our weapon, to 2 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to mainly actually be around 11, moving all the way through 16, uh, but we'll spend the bulk of our time in 2 Samuel 13 and 14. So turn there, if you will. I'm going to mainly be narrating the story today, so uh, I don't fault anybody for not following along perfectly, although today will be a little bit different where we won't have as many of the verses on the screen. But nonetheless, pay close attention to the message because I think everybody will leave here hopefully a little bit better 
Then they came. So today's message takes place in the life of David. And if you would remember from a few months ago, I was doing a whole entire series on the book of 1 Samuel, and eventually in 1 Samuel, who comes along? The person of David. And one of the last sermons I actually preached to you guys had to do with David's moral failure. And does anybody remember who that moral failure was with? Bathsheba, perfect, yes. It was with Bathsheba. And there was something that happened out of that moral failure. Eventually, the prophet Nathan would go up to David and tell him that because of this failure in David's life, that a sword would come into his family. And this sword would never depart from him. So today we're going to look at the life of David, specifically his children, Abnon, Tamar, and Absalom. Abnon, Tamar, and Absalom. So in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see David ruling over the kingdom, and eventually he falls into sin with Bathsheba. And moving on to David's life into chapter 13, we see that his sins with Bathsheba create a problem that begins to permeate and perpetuate into his family. You see, David's strife, his turmoil with his family would start to extend onto his children. David's oldest son's name was Amnon. His second was Tamar, and his third was Absalom. You see, the thing with Amnon is that he had an insatiable desires. He had desires that he could just not give up, and he was a glutton after his own sexuality. And while even though we are looking at the life of ancient history, I think this is something we still see within certain types of people, and especially men even within this today. You see... Oddly enough, he found his sister, his half-sister, Tamar, to be a beautiful woman, and he wanted her for himself. He lusted after her like a fire that could not be quenched unless he had her. Sin often has a way of doing that, right? We believe that unless we give into our sin, the desires of it will never subside. So it says in scripture in 2 Samuel 13, 1, that in the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. He asked Amnon in verse 4, why do the son of the king, why does he look haggard morning after morning? You see, this feeling of frustration continued on Amnon's life, and he continued to feel a frustration that grew over the fact that he could not have his sister. And he says this much. He says, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So Amnon goes to his cousin, Jonadab, to figure out a way to get Tamar. So instead of dealing with these feelings in a healthy way, he decides that he wants to act on these desires. So he speaks to his wicked cousin who gives him advice to pretend to be sick. 
And he says to him that when his father asks him what is wrong, that he can then use his sickness to get his father to send Tamar to care for him. I think this is a good reminder on how the kind of company we keep matters. That depending on the company we keep, it could either affect our lives for the better or for the worse. And I think we need to ask ourselves, do you keep the kind of company that pushes you towards godliness or wickedness? What kind of company do you keep? And that we cannot underestimate the power of our inner circles in life. That the people in your life will directly impact you for better or for worse. And don't get me wrong, this doesn't mean that we can't have friends that differ in opinion from us. Because after all, we are called, are we not, to be able to be lights within the world. But we still need to be mindful of the impact and influence others have in our lives. So Amnon follows the advice of his cousin, and he gets his father to send Tamar to care for him. Once she's in his home, darkness begins to creep into the room as he asks Tamar to send all of the servants and all of what? The people within the household away. And with everybody gone and the doors locked in darkness, that's oozing out of Amnon's heart begins to set. He requests Tamar to come and feed him by hand, saying that he's too weak to do otherwise. And once Tamar is close enough and trying to love her half-brother who's in this moment of illness, she figures out that his intentions are different than what she expected. And just like that, Amnon pounces onto Tamar. And Tamar, desperately trying to get out of this situation, she yells out and screams, Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing, she pleads to Amnon, who desperately just wants her for himself. And what Tamar is doing here, if you look at the Hebrew language, is she's literally, she's literally pleading for Amnon not to rape her. And she desperately tries to figure out a way to prevent any actions from furthering. And she says to him, please just talk to our father. He will surely give me over to you. Please, let's do this so that we can maintain our dignity. You see, even though within the Levitical law it would be wrong for a brother or a sister to marry each other, Tamar is so desperate that she is literally trying anything to avoid this situation from going down a wrong path. But you see, Amnon would not have it any other way, so he does what? He consummates his desires towards Tamar. This leads me to my first point I will be making today of four points that I have for each of you 
And this point is especially applicable to any of you in the room who is single or knows somebody that is single, but especially as fathers. And I encourage you that if you are a man within this room, that you listen well to these points. And the first one is is that there is no love without commitment. There is no love without commitment. Always be careful of someone who wants you without any commitment. Did you hear what I just said there? Always be careful of someone who wants you without any commitment. You see, after Amnon consummates his desires, Scripture says that he did what? He kicks her out of the house. And then Scripture says this in verse 15, if you're following along. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. You see, I believe that sinful desires often turns into disrespect and hatred. I think this is also true of relationships for today. That if if we get into relationships that are illegitimate, that desires will often turn into disrespect. Did you hear that? Desires often turn into disrespect if they're founded upon a sinful lust and passion. Young ladies, make no mistake that if a man wants you just for the physical aspects of a relationship, that he does not respect you. And that oftentimes his desires will turn into disrespect. You see, Tamar was the very thing that he idolized. He practically worshipped the idea with being with her that he literally felt physically ill from it. But yet he could not think of anything greater than having her. But once he did, on his own sinful terms, his desires turned into disrespect. So what happens to Tamar? Could you imagine the situation she would have felt herself in? And this is why it's so important that when we read scripture for ourselves, that we read with the mind to put ourselves into the situation of real life people facing real life situations. Because you see, within this culture, for a woman to give herself, or pardon me, for a woman to lose her virginity in this kind of way, outside of the commitment of marriage, would have been utterly devastating. It would ruin her in very many senses of the word. So Tamar, who had now just been defiled, was kicked out of the curve in a state that I cannot imagine what it would feel like to experience. And she's completely broken, and she doesn't know what to do. So she does the only thing that a person who is broken and hurting in her situation thinks of, and she goes to her beloved brother Absalom. 
Now, Absalom, if you did not know this, deeply loved Tamar. He loved her so much that he even named one of his own daughters after her. So after Tamar goes to Absalom, Absalom starts to swell up in anger and goes to who else do you think? His father, David. And David is told of what happened and what Amnon did to Tamar. And scripture says that David became very angry. Now, if I were to ask you guys, do you think that is an appropriate response? Do you think that David should be very angry? The answer is absolutely yes. You see, make no mistake, Christian, there are things that are worth being angry about. And when we see injustices like this, we should be swelled up in anger. It is right for David to be upset over the atrocity that just happened within his own household. But what happens next? Is very odd. Scripture says that David became angry, but then remains completely silent. David does nothing. Nothing. His daughter was raped by his own son. She was violated in that culture and made to be unpure. His sin against Tamar was not just a sin against himself, but a sin against her, nullifying him as well from being a good king, but also preventing Tamar from having her own dignity and being the pure virgin that she wanted to be in a culture that valued it. She sadly lost her chance because of the evil of another person's actions. But this isn't just Tamar's struggle. It's many of our struggles as well. Because you see, sin has a way of not only affecting the person who perpetrates the sin, but also the person who is sinned against. You see, far too often we think that crimes or sometimes sin can be victimless. That it'll fail in in ultimate reality that it doesn't harm other people. But really, we need to understand for ourselves that sin has a way of not just hurting ourselves, but hurting the people around us. And if we think we're clever enough to be able to sin in a way that doesn't hurt ourselves, at the very least, it will hurt the vertical relationship that we have with our Father. And it's here that we realize that David, even though he was known as a man after God's own heart, a man who loved well and loved strongly, at least loved the Lord in those ways, failed as a father to do what? To properly live out his anger in a way that brings justice to the person of Tamar. Which leads me to my second point, and fathers hear this well. Love protects and cares. 
Love protects and cares. You see, it says that David loved his children, but in my opinion, he didn't express that love in a healthy way. David should have done something about the offense of Amnon. Instead, his, in his anger, he does nothing. This isn't true love. This isn't the love that God shows his people. Fathers, in the same way, to love well within the home means you must address issues when they present themselves. Because when left unanswered, it will only lead to bigger problems. If you as a man do not deal with the issues within your home, and I don't say that within a way that you rule with an iron fist, but I say that within a way that if you do not love your family enough to actively work on the issues that present themselves within your home, then you're not truly fulfilling the role of loving your family well. Because I believe love protects and cares. So in David's anger, he does nothing. And what does Absalom decide to do? Because you see, when you leave something left undone, then oftentimes what happens is situations built up like a pressure cooker. And that's exactly what happens to Absalom. So Absalom decides to bring justice into his own hands. And Absalom devises a plan to kill his brother Amnon. Realizing the gravity of this situation, he goes and he devises a plan and he successfully kills Amnon. And then out of fear, what happens next? Absalom flees the kingdom and he runs away in fear that his father, David, will do something about it. You see, time goes by after this and David and Absalom continue to be separated. Nobody does a thing. This family, I think, this messy picture speaks to all of us and it should strike close to all of us because so many of our situations can resemble this. That something bad happens in the family and maybe somebody distances themselves, but the issues are never resolved. And so the pain widens and deepens and the further separation starts to result as, as, as this problem only serves to separate two people. And the love that a father should express to a son now becomes distant. Fathers, in my opinion, are to reflect God. That we are a reflection of God's role in our lives. And that is why so many, I believe, of young people are going through identity crises right now within our country because they don't have good and strong loving men to help firm up for themselves what it means to be a man or a woman. So three years go by and David and Absalom still are at odds with each other until a wise woman from a neighboring city pays David a visit. You see, this woman had two sons. 
and having a similar situation to what David was going through, these two sons got in a feud with each other, and one son killed the other. So she goes to David and asks for a pardon as the living son is being hunted to be brought to justice and will likely be killed if he's found. So not only will this death result in the death of two of her sons, but ultimately the legacy and the care for herself. So she turns to David in her situation of desperation, and she goes to him and offers and asks for a pardon. But she says this, she says, how could you offer me this pardon, but you cannot even offer it to your own banished son? You see, as a king, David wisely recognizes the need to offer forgiveness, but rightly so, this woman turns it back to David and says, you need to live this out. You can't just use wisdom in my life if you're not using it in your own. And I find the words that she says to David to utterly be profound and I believe sums up well the heart of God and it's what Phil read to us earlier today during our scripture reading and it comes from 2 Samuel 14, 14 and I'm gonna read it for you today. But I want you to read this in your hearts right now as I read it aloud because I believe this sums up the heart of the Father, God the Father, that like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Do you hear that? That even though we as people are like spilled water on the ground that cannot be recovered, that God ultimately does not desire that end for ourselves, but rather he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. And just like that, this woman sums up the heart of God. And I think even better said, this woman sums up what? The gospel. That hundreds of years before Jesus would even make his way onto the scene, he, she is telling David what the gospel is, that God's love for us is so great that he does not desire us to stay in a state of banishment, that he does not desire for us to stay in a state where we are like spilled water that cannot be recovered from the ground, but that the Lord Jesus Christ, that God Almighty, a father that truly loves his children, does what? That he devises ways to bring us back into the fold, to love us well, to bring us life. And that is exactly what he did through the person of Jesus. Amen? Say it like you mean it, church. Amen? Amen. That is what the gospel message is about. This is the heart of God. This is the gospel. This leads me to my third point. Love does not reject, it restores. Eventually Absalom moves back to Jerusalem. But what was once a small issue that separated David and Absalom has now become a mountain of a problem. 
Time did not heal all wounds, and it did not allow the hearts to grow fonder. Rather, not dealing with the issues, it built fear and resentment and eventually bitterness in the heart of Absalom. You see, Absalom believed that he could run the kingdom better than his father and serve more justly than his father. And of course, why wouldn't he? After he saw how his own father denied justice within his home. It's obvious that this discontentment of his father stemmed from the lack of initiative that David took. So what does Absalom attempt to do? Well, to take over the kingdom to become the king that his father would not be. But before doing so, he goes to David's trusted advisor, Ahithophel. Now, this is very important, and I think it's easy for us to miss just how important it is and just how interesting this moment within the history of the Davidic kingdom is. Because you see, if you didn't know, Ahithophel functionally served as secretary of state in David's kingdom. But there was something else interesting about the person of Ahithophel, and that was that Ahithophel was the grandfather of none other than with Sheba. So Ahithophel, being the grandfather of Bathsheba, gives Absalom this advice. And we see this advice in Second Samuel, Samuel chapter 16, verse 21, if you'd like to turn there with me. And I want you to pay close attention because you could see from this verse that even though Ahithophel served as a trusted advisor to David, that there was obviously some pain there that he was still remembering and experiencing from David's wrongful interactions with his granddaughter and the injustice that he did to Uriah, the man that David had killed. So it says in verse 21 that This is the advice that Ahithophel gives to Absalom. Sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father. And the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Where was David when he saw Bathsheba? On the roof, on the roof where she was bathing. And how does Ahithophel advise Absalom to sin against his father? Well, in the same way that David sinned against his own family. You see, sin has a rippling effect. When we sin, we become changed and we affect others by that change. If I sin against myself, you can be sure that I will affect my children and those who are around me. When we are thinking of love, we must remember that our passions are not limited to our own specific circumstances, but they will forever impact us as well as those who are around us. This is why love must be properly understood. You see, David had deceived a man. Now he was being deceived. David had defiled a home. Now his home was being defiled. David lust for a woman inappropriately, so his son lusted for Tamar inappropriately. David had provided no justice to Uriah, and no justice was given to Tamar. 
Sin had made its mark and it continued to do so in their lives. And like a boomerang, it came back and hit David at every point of his life. And make no mistake, church, sin will do the same for you and the same for me. Because sin is like poison. And I think that a poor understanding of love had failed David and his children. And a poor understanding of love will fail us. We must then turn to God in order to understand what true love is. We must not believe that there are multiple ways of defining love. Because you see, that is what the world would like to have you think. That you can define love in any way that you see fit. But in reality, if you do that, you run the risk of continuing to damage the world. We need to live within the definition of a godly love. Because you see, Amon thought that his love was a passion for Tamar. Absalom thought that his love was for Tamar to bring justice through his death of Amnon. And David thought that doing nothing would demonstrate his love for his children. And all of these pictures were broken. But if God is love, then what that teaches us out of 1 John 5 8 is that through, if we are to understand love, that it has to be defined through who? Through God. Because he is the true expression of love. G.K. Chesterton, who I had mentioned last week, who influenced C.S. Lewis's life, once wrote these words, that there are many angles in which you can fall, but only one angle in which you can stand straight. And I think what Chesterton was trying to say here is that there is only one way in which something can be done rightly. And it is only through God's love that we can understand love rightly. Amen? Do you hear this, church? This means that in all manners of relationships, the best way to handle it rightly is to experience it through the eyes of God. Better yet, to invite him into the process. Fathers, it is our duty as men to daily cover our family through prayer. To invite the Lord to be a part of the process in making a difference within our home. We stand in those gaps This leads me ultimately to the final point that I'd like to make for you today. Point four, it is only through Christ and in the shadow of his love that we can have complete fulfillment. I want to read to you now verses from 1 Corinthians. Paul authored 1 Corinthians to the church of Corinth, and I'm going to read from Chapter 13, you're welcome to read along with me. I will have this on the screen for you. And I'm going to read verses 4 through 8 to you. Now, many people know what I'm about to read, whether Christian or not, because these verses are often read in joyous celebrations of weddings. 
although Paul did not have a wedding in mind when he wrote this verse, that this verse was rooted as he was talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the church, ultimately, I think here we see a beautiful definition of what love is. And something, if you did not know within Scripture, is that every single time that love is defined within Scripture, it's never defined as a mere passion. It's never defined as just an emotional sentiment. But scripture almost always defines love as what? An action to be demonstrated. And in 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 8, we see very clearly for ourselves love in action. And I'm going to read these words to you now. So listen closely to them. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily anger. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in what? The truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails. And what's remarkable about this verse is that theologians believe that you can remove the word love and have a perfect expression, a perfect definition of the person of Christ. So now I'm going to read that once more to you. So Abel, if you don't mind, trickle back to verse four, and I'm going to replace the word love with the word Christ. Christ is patient. Christ is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no records of wrong. Christ does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects. He always trusts. He always hopes. He always perseveres. Jesus Christ never fails. Amen to that. But the question that I leave for you today, and especially to the fathers in our room, can I replace this word of love with your name? Can I replace this word of love with your name? I ask that question because it is vitally important for the sake of our families, for the sake of the church and the next generation that is to follow. Can I say, Phil is patient? Can I say, Mike is kind? Can I say, Nathan does not envy? Can I say that Gordon doesn't boast, that Stan is not proud, that Preston does not dishonor others? Can I say that Tim keeps no records of wrong? That Leonard does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Can I say that Eli always protects? Can I say that Robert always trusts and always hopes and always perseveres?
can I say that Pastor Kevin never fails? I have some work to do. And chances are you do too. And I would hope that each of you would take the time this week, if not today in this moment, to realize our duty, especially as men, and especially on this Father's Day, to love well. Because love makes all the difference. Love is not an erotic love. It's not just a sappy and emotional love. God's love is ultimately a love marked by the scars that he wears proudly on his arms and on his feet. And I think the love that we share with the world should be marked by the way that we chose to care for those that God has entrusted to us. Let's pray.